Well, good morning again. I'm glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us and I haven't had a chance to introduce myself to you, my name is Jason. I have the honor of serving as pastor here at the church. And as always, more importantly, I'm just a member of this church and it's a fantastic church family. And if, again, if you're visiting, you're surrounded by uh, some, some amazing folks. I hope you'll get to know some people before you leave. Um, and I want to let you know this too, that um, after the service, um, if, if you're visiting with us, I'll be at the end of the hallway, last room on the left. And I do that to kind of slip out of here, but I do that so that I can um, make some space to hang out with you and meet with you. So if you're visiting with us, I'd love for you to come down uh, to that room, last room on the left, and, uh, and just uh, get to know me. Let me get to know you, and I have a gift for you. Um, nothing too, too flashy, too elaborate, but something just to, to give you to say, hey, thanks for spending time uh, with us this morning. And so um, that'll be right after the service. Um, we are in the book of Acts, chapter 9. If you want to grab your Bible, your sermon notes uh, are in the seat in front of you. Uh, follow along, feel free to do that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, um, not only will we have the words on the screen, but we'll have, um, we have Bibles under the seats around you. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, that's our free gift to you. So I want to make sure everybody has a copy of God's Word. So we are uh, back in the book of Acts starting last week. Uh, Nick Hill preached and, uh, and got us fired back, fired back off in the Acts sermon series. And this week we're going to be in chapter 9. A uh, couple things. First of all, let me just start with the sermon series. We're going through the book of Acts together as a church. Um, the subtitle of the sermon series is The Unstoppable Church. And so um, what we're learning through the book of Acts is that um, the book of Acts is, is, a, is, a, is a narrative uh, story of the church launching empowered by the Holy Spirit. And more importantly, it is a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 16, when he said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Jesus casts a vision for his disciples that his church would be a prevailing church. And the more that the gates of hell attempt to come against it, the more it will prevail and grow and flourish. And so the book of Acts is the beautiful telling of that story. And so when we say unstoppable church, that's what we mean, that, that a gathering of Christ's followers who are uh, in submission to the lordship of Jesus, empowered by his spirit, will truly be unstoppable. Now, what we don't mean is that any organization or group of people that, that put the word church in their name will be unstoppable, or that they will succeed, or they will grow, or that they will flourish. There have been many of organizations that have had the word church in their name that have have closed shop, have shut the doors, have dwindled down, have sold out and moved on. And so what we mean by that, though, is, is a body of believers, followers of Jesus, in submission to the lordship of Jesus, empowered by his spirit, will be unstoppable, not because of us, but because of that which he has promised. And so, so Solid Rock Church, let us remind ourselves that the only way we will be a part of this unstoppable movement of God is to operate in complete submission to his lordship, empowered by his spirit. Short of that, we are in fact stoppable. We might as well shut the doors tomorrow, liquefy all the assets and walk away if we're not gonna walk in submission to Jesus empowered by his spirit. And so as we move through the book of Acts, we've made it to chapter nine. It's a monumental moment in the story of the church. And what we're gonna read about today is the conversion of Saul. We have briefly been introduced to him throughout the book of Acts. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. And at this point, he, he goes by Saul. By the time we get to chapter 13, he's going to go by Paul. So somewhere in the next four chapters, there's a name transition. But today, we're going to be looking at the heart transition that happens in this man, Saul. The mistake that we could make is to think that chapter 9 is actually about him. 
Now, it's monumental because this guy will go from killing Christians to writing most of your New Testament. It's a pivotal moment in the story of the church, but it's, but it's not God saying, look at Saul and how powerful he is and how influential he is. This is really not a story about him. He just happens to be a supporting character in the story. This is ultimately a story about what Jesus is doing as he moves forward his prevailing church. And so let's start in verse 1 and 2 with a quick reminder and introduction uh, to Saul. Verse 1 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so what uh, the author of Acts is reminding us of is that Saul was the one there approving the first martyr. Remember back in chapter 7, we had Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church, one of the first servants who signed up to wait tables, and then later on, he's preaching uh, a defense for Christ, and they stone him to death. It's Saul who's there approving uh, his, uh, his death sentence. And, and so now Saul has moved from Jerusalem, and now he wants to go to Damascus and carry this out in Damascus. Because remember, from the remaining part of chapter 8, the gospel has now breached the walls of Jerusalem, and it's now headed out to the surrounding cities. And so it's not just contained in Jerusalem. So Saul realizes this. He needs to get written permission to go beyond the walls of Jerusalem to chase down the Christians all the way to Damascus so he can bring this movement to an end. And so he's seeking written permission from the high priest to carry this out. Now, this is a brutal uh, picture of, of not only persecution, but all-out torture against the church. We read that he's looking for written permission to bind the hands of men and women, to go door-to-door, kicking down doors, and anybody who does not renounce the name of Christ, he has permission to bind them and drag them back to Jerusalem to try them and ultimately put them to death. Okay, this is Saul right now. Verse 3. And as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now the men traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So um, what, G, what, what, what Saul has just encountered is the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't fully know that or what that means at this moment, all he knows are the ramifications of that is he's been brought to complete humiliation and desperation. Okay, this is a rising star uh, in, in Judaism. This is a rising star in Jerusalem. He's been mentored by Gamaliel, which was one of the, the most sought-after mentors in the Jewish faith at this time. 
rising star, a Pharisee among Pharisees, a who's who in Jerusalem, both religiously and politically. He's got his boys here with him. He's going for, he's got written permission to kill Christians, got, got his crew with him, and, and then all of a sudden, he encounters the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that immediately a light shone around him. Now, this is similar to what we see in the Christmas narrative. The light shines around the shepherds, uh, but this is a blinding light that brings Saul to complete humiliation in front of, in front of his boys and complete desperation. They've got to help him up off the ground. So from, from rising political stature, rising religious influence to dead in the water, flat on his face, on the ground, can't even see, can't even operate. Lord Jesus brings everything to a screeching halt. And it's important to know at this moment, so Jesus gave the commission, go make disciples. At this point in time, Saul is killing disciples. That's his mission here on earth. And Jesus brings everything to a screeching halt. Saul is leading the charge of ultimately what Jesus calls the gates of hell that are, that are coming against the church. Saul is the front man for that movement of the gates of hell to shut down the church. And in this moment, Jesus brings him to complete humiliation and desperation. He takes all, of it, all that is considered strength away from him in this moment. If his, if his crew decides to leave him there, he's going to die. Can't take care of himself at this moment. So they help him up off the ground, lead him back into town. Now, I want to make just one note. So as God brings Saul to nothing here, we know the rest of the story that this is ultimately for his good, right? This is going to end in his good. But in this moment, right, Saul probably isn't feeling that much like our lives, that it's completely within the character of God to bring us to complete nothing for our own good. And so this example that we see in Saul is, is something that the Lord Jesus does in our lives as well. In those areas of our lives where, where we're, we're working against the kingdom of God, right, where we're acting out in rebellion and disobedience, that the Lord Jesus Christ would bring us to nothing, that he might do something in us and for us to our good. Well, as it continues on, we're introduced to another character here, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. So this is where Saul is headed. And there's a Christian there by the name of Ananias. And the Lord says to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, He's praying, and he has seen a vision. Uh, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So beautiful insight here to how God orchestrates things. So Jesus is bringing Saul to his knees in desperation, and then through a vision, he's speaking to Saul, saying, you need to be led into this town, and then I'm going to send somebody to you. And then at the same time, he goes to this Christian named Ananias, and he says, hey, by the way, I've got something for you to do. I want you to meet up with this guy. This is how you'll know who he is, and here's what I want you to do. Now, the reputation of Saul uh, was, was known region-wide. We're about to see that here. Verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I, I've heard from many about this man. 
how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. You, you, you're empathizing with Ananias, aren't you? You can feel that sense of hesitation. He said, I didn't know this is what I signed up for. I thought I was going to go to these people who don't know you and tell them about you, and then you were going to work in their heart and lead them to you, and then I'd go to the next person, and I, I was in on that. But now you're wanting me to go to your direct enemy, enemy number one, the guy who has written permission in this town to bind me up, drag me to Jerusalem, and put me to death? I just, just want to make sure I heard you correctly. You ever, you ever responded to God that way? I think I heard you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need a little bit more here, right? I need to throw out some fleece here just to make sure that I heard your voice correctly. And so, verse 15, the Lord said to him, go. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed, and he entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Ananias was fully aware of the danger from, the, from what we read here in the scriptures, seems he was a little bit nervous or hesitant, but ultimately Ananias is going to trust in what? What Jesus said. And so I want to I bring this out real quick before we move any further. This is not a story about Saul, and it's not a story about Ananias. This is a story about what Jesus is doing. Jesus is taking an unlikely disciple, Ananias, who we don't have any previous knowledge of, Right? He's obviously not super courageous. He's willing to be obedient, not super courageous, kind of an unlikely servant right? to do what? To, to lead a very unlikely enemy to himself. If anything, what God is saying is my mission will prevail, and I'll show you that because I'll work through the most unlikely candidates. Because we know that the, the amazing positive influence that, that Saul is going to have on the church after this moment, right? We read the rest of the New Testament, we go, wow, what a powerful thing God is doing here. What God is saying is, this is not about Paul. It's not about Ananias. And guess what? It's not about you. It's about what I am doing. It's about my kingdom prevailing. It's about my church moving forward. I have launched an unstoppable mission. And I will show you that because I'll use the most unlikely candidates to carry it out. If you're taking notes with us this morning, Jesus uses the most unlikely people to accomplish his unstoppable mission. Now let me bring that full circle. That's why we're sitting here today. That's why you're sitting here today. You weren't let into his kingdom on a trial basis you weren't led into his kingdom, just going to see how this thing works out. You're sitting here today because God works in and through the most unlikely people. I, I love it when somebody says, well, I don't know if I could come to your church. I'm afraid the walls would come crashing down if I walked into your church. And I'm thinking, holy cow, first of all, you've never met the people in our church. <laughs> like, 
yeah, you're going to have a hard time be, being more disqualified. But, but second to that, man, you're the most likely candidate that Jesus wants to work in, so please show up to take the most unlikely among us and do a powerful work is just the kind of thing God is doing and still does. From, from my perspective, this last Wednesday, we had one of the most ex- exciting all-member meetings I've ever been to in any church ever. It wasn't the story about what we're doing. We looked at the story of what God is doing. Make no mistake about it. God is not working in this church because of awesome members who have it all together. He's working in this church despite the fact that we have no awesome members who have it all together. God is not working in this church because of awesome leadership or elders or a pastor. He's working in this church despite the fact that we don't have awesome leadership. We don't have super spiritual awesome elders or pastors here. He's working despite us. Why? Because this isn't our story. It's his. His story. Jesus has and always will use the most unlikely people to accomplish his unstoppable mission. And that's us. Verse 18. This is the response now. Ananias has prayed over Saul, verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples in Damascus, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Now, there's a theme in those two verses, immediately. There was an immediate transformation in Saul's life. Now, we're not calling him Paul yet. Again, that'll happen in about four chapters. But before the name changes, something something changes inside of him. I want to talk about that transformation for just a moment because I think there is some misunderstanding in the church today about this transformation and what it's supposed to look like. Okay, so let's talk about what it doesn't mean. The word immediately here doesn't mean that Saul was now no longer tempted to sin. If you want to write that down in your notes, that's not what it means here. He doesn't walk away from this moment a perfectly moral man, right? I mean, the proof is in the scriptures, time after time. Again, Romans 7. This is Paul, same guy. Here's what he's writing. Years later, as a mature leader in the church, in verse 15, he says this, For I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have, I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wow, that sounds familiar. That's the apostle Paul describing the struggle with the flesh empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we know that he wasn't immediately a perfectly moral person. He still struggled with sin. We also know this, that immediately doesn't mean that Saul was going to have an easy life. Another misconception and false teaching in the modern church that once you give your life to Christ, everything's going to be smooth. Again, the words of Paul himself, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 
40 lashes less one because they believed that 40 would kill a man. So five times he was beaten 30 with 39 lashings. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and sleepless night, or cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Same, same guy here, right? So immediately life wasn't smooth. I mean, we're going to see uh, in this chapter, there's already a death sentence put on his head, and they got to sneak him out of town. And then he goes to Jerusalem before the chapter's over. Another death sentence is issued for Saul. I mean, this, this joker doesn't get just beat once for, for, for following Jesus. He gets beat how many times? I lost count. Eight times that were meant to torture him to the brink of death that he might change his mind. Once he was stoned, which is a death sentence, shipwrecked, not once, not twice, but he gets back on a boat, right, to be shipwrecked again. So immediately it does not mean that he's going to have an easy life. So let's talk about what it does mean, that immediately everything changed for Saul. First of all, immediately means that Saul was now a new person on the inside. Something had permanently and eternally changed within him. New on the inside. Okay, so here's what we mean by that. This is what we call the now and the not yet. In this moment of faith for Saul, he is made perfectly righteous before the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing lacking. There's absolutely no reason why he does not get to step into heaven. However, here on earth, in the now, he's still struggling with the flesh. Right? So we know that every day he's becoming more and more like Christ. He's becoming more and more like his eternal state of perfect righteousness. But that's already been secured for him. It's not a let's wait and see what happens kind of deal. It's Paul, you are now righteous before me. The moment you step out of this phys physical life into eternity, you'll be robed and clothed in righteousness. There'll be no blemish on you. It's now and still not yet, Right? And we know that. That's our struggle. We are every day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, becoming more and more what we already are in Christ. Perfectly righteous. But there's still a sin struggle, right? So immediately means that Saul was now a new person. This is why he writes in Romans 8.1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, there's still sin. There's still this wrestling match with sin. But, it's not, but there's no condemnation. This is Paul writing to the, church, uh, to the Galatians. He's writing in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, not in myself, who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's why he opened up his letter to Pastor Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, by saying this. Here's a trustworthy saying, Timothy and it deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Saul is saying, don't look at me for perfect morality, look at me for the perfect patience of Jesus. What you're gonna see in me is not that I'm a perfectly moral person or that I have arrived, but what you're gonna see in me is that Jesus is graceful and merciful and patient. Because I still struggle with sin. Immediately means that he was now a new person on the inside and immediately means this, that Saul now had a new mission in life. A new mission in life. We saw that, right? Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he's the son of God. This reminds me of what what Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter one. He said, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death, for to me to live is Christ to die is gain. And what what Paul is saying, he's writing from prison, is that if I die in this place, I'm gonna step into eternity and the not yet is gonna become the now and I'm good. However, as long as I have breath in my physical body, I will live for Christ. I have a new mission. And so while his morality wasn't complete yet, that hadn't fully taken place, his moral transition, right? He's not a perfectly moral person. His His mission in life had been completely and immediately transformed. Immediately transformed. Now, there's a a bumper sticker that you've probably seen. It's been out for 20 years or so. Not Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven, um, which is a true statement, but I would say somewhat incomplete. Um, That's absolutely true. We're not perfect in our own strength and moral deeds. We've been forgiven for where we're not perfect. Um, at the same time, we've been made righteous before Christ, but here is the other part of that is that, but, but I now have a new mission in life. Not perfect, forgiven with a new mission. Because see, that happens immediately. And I think that there's this misconception or there's a, there's a, a break in uh, the, proce- the thought process that once I'm forgiven, I gotta wait until I get life together, then I'll jump on board for the mission. Then at some point, God will invite me to be on the team. But right now, he's just letting me wear the jersey, right? And I have a number, and I get to sit the bench, and I get to cheer on all the super Christians and tell them, good job. Way to preach it. Way to sing it. Way to go get them. But that's not how it worked for him, right? Jesus wasn't waiting until he got all of his morality perfectly together. A, that's never going to happen short of death, right? But B, he's, he's got a mission immediately, before he has it all together, before he writes any scripture, right? His mission starts and begins when? Immediately. And so has yours. If you're in Christ, your moral transformation is a now and not yet reality. Jesus is still working on you. Let's go have coffee if you're not convinced of that. However, your missional transformation for Jesus is a now reality. It's not a not yet reality. It's not something you're waiting on. It's right now. Now, what happens from here is, I mentioned earlier, um, Saul immediately becomes this authoritative spokesperson for Christ, and he begins to reason with the Jews and convince them that Jesus truly is the Messiah that's promised in the Old Testament, and a lot of Jews are becoming Christians now because of him. 
Same chapter. I mean, this is immediately. And so they put out a death sentence for his head, and the disciples sneak him out of a town. Lower, out of, they lower him out of a window there in one of the buildings, escapes to Jerusalem. Then the death sentence is issued there. What I want you to see, though, more importantly, is what this story is about in Acts 9, verse 31. So the church through all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It multiplied. Now, at, at, the, at, the, at key points in the narrative of Acts, Luke, the author, stops to let us know that the church is not shrinking, it's not falling away, it's not slowing down, it's multiplying. And early on, Luke would give us numbers. Acts 2, 3,000 became believers, right? Acts 5, 5,000. And then it became, you know what? I just, there's no way to count it because it's moved outside of Jerusalem. A lot of people. And it's still multiplying. Why? Because Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell, I don't care who's leading that movement, will not prevail against it. It is an unstoppable church. And he told his disciples at the beginning of Acts, when my spirit comes upon you in power, you're going to take this gospel out, starting here in Jerusalem, then to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And what Luke wants us to see in verse 31 is what Jesus said is, in fact, happening. If you're taking notes, let's look at this last statement. Being an unstoppable church means trusting in Jesus, trusting in Jesus. That's what Saul did. That's what Ananias did. Trusting in Jesus by engaging in the mission, right? It wasn't enough for Saul to say, okay, I trust in you, Jesus. That trust had to have action to it. We know Saul trusted Jesus. Why? Because he started preaching for him. We know Ananias trusted Jesus. Why? Not because of his courage, because he was some brave a uh, guy from Damascus, why? Because despite his hesitations and his fears, he went anyway to Saul. Trusting. It means trusting in Jesus by engaging in the mission, despite how dangerous or impossible it may seem. Believing that he will keep his promise and his church will prevail. It's not enough to say I trust in Jesus if I am not engaged in his mission. I want to take a moment now to, uh, to let you hear from um, a family in our church who has come to a place of trusting in Jesus, and they're getting ready to go live this mission as a part of what we're reading here in Acts um, in the ends of the earth. Uh, the Rathbun family, as you may already know, a family from our church, a family that has been called from Solid Rock. We have spent time working with and training and, and running them through the ringers and getting them prepared and ready. They're ready to go. And so you're going to get to hear a word from them here in just a moment. But I want to remind you of this. Like, as we watch this video, this isn't a story of missionaries. This is a story of Christ's followers. Okay? The Rathbuns are like Ananias in this story. They'll be the first to tell you. We're not super, super awesome about us. We're just simply engaging in the mission. We're not perfect. We don't have it all together. We're going to make mistakes but we are engaging in the mission, trusting that Jesus is gonna do what he said he's gonna do. And I wanna leave you with this challenge before we watch their video. 
Trusting Jesus means living on mission for Jesus. I often ask, have you come to the place in your journey where you've trusted in Christ and Christ alone? If the answer is yes, then that means engaging in the mission. If I proclaim to trust Jesus, yet I'm not engaged in his mission, what am I actually trusting in him for? See, if I'm not engaged in the mission, then everything about my faith in Jesus is about me. It's about what I want him to do for me and in me and to me. Let me just ask you this last question and then we'll roll the video. Is your relationship with Jesus about you or is it about living for him? Because if you've trusted in Jesus, he's calling you to engage in his mission. Let's run the Rathbun video. Um, the first and most important thing would be to, to pray for us and uh, to pray for the people that we're going to be working with and the people we'll be ministering to. That That is definitely going to be the biggest thing um, because we're going to be you know, basically alone as Americans out there, and that'll be, that'll be challenging. Letters um, from either community groups or uh, just individual families will be very uh, nice and very encouraging. Uh, care packages every, every once in a while will also be uh, nice and helpful. The main thing as far as support is um, just for the people of Solid Rock to just um, if, to just be genuinely interested in our lives and um, what we're going to be doing there, and um, you know, to reach out to us on Facebook or through email or um, you know Skype or something, just to kind of help keep us grounded and um, keep us connected to you know our friends and family that are here in the states. I've known since well before college that I wanted to get into mission work. And so I went to college with that, um, that in mind, that I wanted to, to be a missionary and I wanted to serve overseas and I wanted to share the gospel with people who had never heard it before. I had been drawn to um, studying other cultures and, and, and noticing that these people seemingly didn't have uh, a church or didn't have a gospel present in, in, in their cultures. And, that really kind of broke my heart because I realized that uh, there were there were people all over the world who who were dying and not knowing Jesus and not knowing the good news and not knowing salvation. Um, I was blessed enough to be raised by parents who made ministry and missions um, really important, and they taught my sister and I that. Um, this was a really, really important aspect of the Christian life. Um, but I think really, um, I didn't feel completely sold out to the idea of um, international mission work, like a life of international missions, until um, I spent a summer in India. Just the communities that we were visiting, um, it was definitely a man's world. So. Um, our teammate Stephen, he would be sharing the gospel in a village, and Alyssa and I 
were forced to, um, we couldn't stay while he was sharing the gospel with the men. Um, we were forced to go into the kitchen with the women. We didn't have a translator. Um, after spending the morning in one of these villages, um, being just so angry that um, we couldn't communicate with these women and we couldn't share the gospel with them, um, I went for a walk and just by myself, I went for a walk and I was just praying and um, just telling God how upset I was that um, here I was, I was there, I was there to do what he wanted me to do and I just couldn't do it. I was walking down this path and um, there was a girl that was standing in the middle of the path up ahead and she was just standing there staring at me um, as I was approaching her and um, when I got up to where she was at, um, in almost perfect English, she, she said, um, I've been waiting for you. And I was like, what? <laughs> You've been waiting for me because you don't know who I am and I don't even know how you knew I was going to be here. And um, it, was, it just seemed kind of insane. Um, but she was waiting for me and uh, had the opportunity to um, go into her home and share the gospel with her. And, and um, so that was just, uh, I guess, a, a defining moment for me when I just knew um, that this was the life that I was called to. So uh, in the Philippines, uh, there are a couple big islands, and we're going to be living on one of them. The island is named Mindanao, and we will be living in a city town called Butuan, and uh, we will be working on a small island off uh, the north coast of Mindanao called Dinaga. And so it's about a four-hour bus ride um, from Butuan to uh, the shore, and then from the, the shore you take a four-hour ferry to get to the island. And so when we're working on the island, we're going to be working uh, primarily with um, one church starting out. We're going to be going in, we're going to be helping them with uh, discipleship, we're going to be helping to see that their church is strengthened, see that um, that they're going to be needing help with evangelism training, and so we're going to help with that as well. And then we're going to be taking short evangelism trips with them um, to different parts of their island and uh, going to these areas that, that have never really heard the gospel, the, the true gospel, and we're going to um, see churches planted, planted in these areas, and then we're going to be helping to work with those churches to see that they get started, see that they uh, follow the Bible and how and what a church is supposed to be doing, and then we're going to be helping them with discipleship and helping them with evangelism, so then that process can continue and, and spread throughout that island. I'm Jeff Rathbun. And I'm Holly Rathbun. And we are the Family on a Mission.